0: Good morning and welcome to episode 790 of Effectively Wild, a daily podcast from the Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at baseballreference.com. I was just using it today. I was just, yeah, I might, I was using it today. Ben? Mm-hmm. Hi, Ben. Hi. On 538. Hi, I'm Sam Miller. Hey, Ben, I'm Sam Miller. I know. I was just using it today and I might use it for, I might use what I was looking at for the Play Index tomorrow, or I might write about it. I haven't decided, but, uh, it's just it continues to blow me away at how like I can have some little like little question and then it can do like you know like thousands of thousands of you know man hours of labor in like two and a half seconds. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. <laughs> it's an
1: impressive tool.
0: <laughs> it really is. All right. How are you? I'm okay. Anything to talk about?
1: Trying to figure out whether your outfit that you wore all summer would pass the dress code. For the yeah, I, Hall of Fame
0: I, <laughs> press conference would. tomorrow? I think it would.
1: The I think it uh, would. It's, it doesn't really specify your exact outfit. So the, the press there, conference is there, being held at the New York Athletic Club. So there's a dress code. So there are many items of clothing that are prohibited, but not hoodies specifically. So you might be okay.
0: Yeah, I could always take the hoodie off if it came to that, too. The polo shirt underneath would have covered me, right? Yeah,
1: colored and shirts is listed under requested attire, so you'd be fine. Now,
0: now I know that I have, I have seen corduroys referred to as jeans before. I assume, though, when I see jeans, there's probably a lot of people out there who are, like, gobsmacked right now thinking, you have, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, sorry, but I have. Uh, I have but also. But I think when... I think when people say jeans in this context, they generally mean denim. And corduroys are are considered
1: nice. They're at least as nice as dungarees or whatever were allowed. It does say it says denim of any color. And then it says pants that resemble jeans of any color. Mm -hmm. So that could include corduroys. I don't know. My my pajama jeans are definitely out.
0: (laughs) My gosh, what? (laughs) As seen (laughs) on TV hang on as seen on my browser in a second pajama jeans yep oh my goodness <laughs> why though
1: so comfortable for
0: well, wearing uh, around the house i don't are they pajamas that just look like jeans
1: yes or
0: are they they're not denim
1: no but they are very they, convincing
0: so, yeah but why <laughs> why do you want them to look like jeans like they're all they are is pajamas that they've basically like painted and stylized to look like jeans right there's yes, nothing right so why why would you want that well i mean i'm not saying you wouldn't want it who cares but why would you want? I definitely that?
1: do want it yeah from, from from afar they look like real pants so if you're in a situation where you want to be wearing pajamas but you don't want to look like you are <laughs> they're perfect
0: but only from afar ben
1: <laughs> yeah that's true
0: So what situation are you in where you want people, where you're concerned about how people will see you, but you are confident they won't come within 30 feet of you?
1: (laughs) I guess that doesn't happen that often.
0: Okay. Interesting. Did you buy them yourself or did someone buy them for you? No, they were a gift. But Mm -hmm.
1: uh, I think I had mentioned at one point that I wanted some.
0: (laughs) All right. All right. So, Ben. Yeah. uh, Yesterday, there was a rumor by John Heyman. Desmond Camp, and Padres are expected to speak this week to see if there's anything to talk about. <laughs> Very preliminary, and uh, I am not calling this a non-revelatory uh, rumor. But what I am calling it, though, I'm now I'm now doing a spinoff just for this season. It's an ad hoc uh, category uh, because we've been talking about the strangely quiet hot stove in January for a bunch of star players. I'm now going with the revelatory non-rumor.
1: Uh-huh.
0: There are no rumors yesterday. No rumors we have, at all. We, like Justin Upton is just hanging out in in January, and we're not hearing things. It's fine that he hasn't signed. He can do what he wants. But isn't it especially weird that you just don't ever hear his name? You hardly ever hear his name or Sesame's name or Chris Davis' name until Ian Desmond News mm-hmm kind of started up again yesterday you weren't really hearing his name yeah has the rumor has the rumor died then <laughs> it doesn't it, it doesn't it sort of feel like like
1: we don't really hear rumors the way that we did five years ago uh no okay. <laughs> maybe in the, maybe yesterday maybe in the last couple of weeks i don't know i, I wouldn't have said that there was any decline in rumor frequency over the it, last few years yeah
0: it might just be that i'm not I'm not like, you know, checking for them as much or that I have uh, my focuses elsewhere. So maybe I'm just not seeing them. I used to be, you know, like hardcore refresh, refresh, refresh. Yeah. It felt to me like you used to get a lot more rumors for every free agent uh, than you do now. And also that there were a lot fewer surprise transactions. Uh-huh. A lot of transactions surprise me these days. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I know that they, what, didn't they, a few years ago, didn't they kind of crack down on clubs leaking information
1: yeah that was in the new CBA the current CBA that you weren't supposed to leak terms at least and a, a lot of stuff still leaks so I don't know how much difference that made
0: uh huh. Yeah. yeah I don't know if it made any difference there was but, that
1: rumor about the White Sox wanting Cespedes and Gordon but only being willing to go three years which great good luck well guys.
0: Y- great except it's January 5th yeah. So nah. and there's four guys out there. There's four outfielders. Yeah. I mean, so like uh this is, uh Dan Rathman pointed out in uh in a thing that he wrote today. The Ian Desmond is a really good example of the the scarcity illusion that uh we sometimes talk about on here, where it seems like you want to be the only free agent at your position, but if you're the only free agent at your position, it probably means that only one team just lost its that guy, right? Uh-huh. And ian desmond is the only shortstop on the market essentially he's he has been the only free agent shortstop on the market it ought to be this just huge bidding war for the one good shortstop and yet as dan pointed out there's really only one team in baseball that needs a shortstop and has any interest in you know spending money right now and that's the padres and even there you know maybe maybe not because who knows what their budget is like who knows whether they are doing another round of buying at this point we don't really know where they are but they're the most plausible so even though Ian Desmond theoretically like could look at this offseason and go perfect no competition gonna get a little bidding war going between me and three teams Uh, well the problem is that you know Xander Bogarts actually had a really good breakout year and Didi Gregorius turned out to be a really successful shortstop and Corey Seager matriculated and the three big teams who didn't have, you know, really didn't have good short, necessarily have good sure shortstops a year ago, uh, all do now. And so it doesn't really matter how many other guys are on the market with you. If there's only 30 teams and you know, 29 of them aren't interested in you, yeah. uh, then you're sort of stuck anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so, anyway, uh, so now I don't know if I don't know if that's where we are with these outfielders. I don't know if that's why these corner guys aren't getting signed. If it's at all, like we talked about, if it's at all related to that. But real quick, I'm going to make some predictions.
1: Oh wow! Okay.
0: Yeah, I'm going to say uh, that Cespedes, Upton, and Davis will all sign for exactly the same years and dollars that Shinsu Chu got.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: I'm going to say that Alex Gordon ends up the guy who gets squeezed and signs a deal that's shorter and for way less than you think. And I'm going to go crazy and say that it's going to be the Rays that get him. Wow. That this will be the biggest signing in Rays history. And it'll be like three years, $42 million. And everybody will be like, like blown away that they got Alex Gordon for that much. (laughs) And then I'm going to say Ian Desmond, four years, 75. San Diego Padres.
1: Wow. Okay, that's more predictions than we usually make in weeks. <laughs> you just—I just—I was driving around today, and I just felt inspired to predict some things. There's some bold predictions in there. All right,
0: Paul De Podesta. Yeah.
1: So there's news about him at least.
0: It probably is um, going to be easy to make too big a deal out of him going to football, as though this is a huge paradigm shift. Uh, he he has a football background. He played football. He got his start almost kind of in football uh, although at a very low level Uh, and so probably it's not as though uh, we should necessarily talk about this as a huge example of a non-expert going into a sports franchise running uh, position however uh, it is I think it's interesting this is not the topic by the way still banter Mm -hmm. it is interesting I think uh, two things about it one is that we tend to think of these guys as as smart baseball minds and i think that in both directions we should think about both the people who do them and the positions that they're filling as management positions Uh, and if a big part of paul de podesta's value initially was that he was an outsider a person who was not your classic baseball guy who was 99 out of the 100 applicants you were going to get for any position we're going to be this sort of archetype of a baseball man, uh, that, um, that now that, that we have, you know, 13, 14 years of all these people staffing front offices, you could make the case that, uh, the, they are their own homogeneity Uh and that, um, that it's maybe time. It might be that it is time for a kind of new recalibration of what we look for in front offices. And, you know, Meg Rowley wrote about that from the perspective of diversity and getting not just, and so did Dustin Palmit not just uh, people who fit a very specific demographic profile or who come from a very specific uh, subset of universities. Um, And that's uh, definitely part of it. I think that you could make the case that it might be time though, to also start thinking about having a broader, you know, disciplinary background. And Uh I sort of have, been kind of for the last 3 or 4 years I've kind of been expecting the next semi revolution to be that teams are hiring non baseball academics or non baseball scientists or non baseball researchers or non baseball expertise to handle a lot of these issues that I think are too big for baseball people to deal with so it's interesting uh a for a uh, Podesta to now kind of in that sense be going over to the football realm where he brings less football expertise and more uh, management and creativity expertise, and B or two to see him recognized. I forget forget where the B was, but something. There's a B in there as well. Uh, So that's interesting, I think. I also think that his title, Chief Strategy Officer, we don't know what that title will be uh, or what that job will be exactly or what he'll do, but it sounds an awful lot like Logic Enforcer which is, of course, my dream job. Yeah, Uh,
1: So kind of a cool job.
0: Common sense consultant, logic enforcer, chief strategy officer. They're all basically Mad Libs. (laughs) Uh, So uh, did you have any thoughts about Paul Podesta leaving baseball? Do you think he will come back? Do you think that it is time to write his baseball legacy and baseball obituary?
1: There's some cross-pollination of sports executives. I'm trying to think of basketball examples i know there have been some analytics side basketball examples but of course there's billy bean's well-known interest in soccer and the yankees former pro scouting director went to work for mls as an executive sort of business development guy or, or player development guy so it's only natural i think that there would be some movement across sports and and People get bored probably doing the same thing for a really long time. You never know. we might You might wake up one day and we'll be talking about the Cleveland Browns. It'll be a Cleveland Browns podcast all of a sudden. Actually, I guess there is one of those, right? It was on Hang Up and Listen. But it's a sport with more opportunities maybe for for analytical thinking at this point, or maybe it's it's easier to differentiate yourself, as you said, and it's kind of a A growing field or a field that's becoming more sophisticated instead of one that already is very sophisticated and maybe is hard to set yourself apart and we don't know maybe he just got a huge raise (laughs) but um, it's not totally shocking to me that someone would move from one sport to another
0: long long ago on this podcast we talked about how many of the 30 best GMs in the world are currently in baseball yeah are currently doing baseball jobs and whether, uh, you know, if you had some sort of like omniscient way of judging who would actually be the 30 most successful GMs, like whether like, you know, Rahm Emanuel would be one of them or whether like some like superintendent of New York city schools well I think chancellor, whatever would be one of them. Or if, you know, guy running, uh, you know, guy running a feed store in, um, in Hollister would be one of them or what, And uh, I think we decided that we kind of thought that it was still the case that most of them are in baseball right now. They might not necessarily be GMs, but they're in baseball right now. I think that's what we said. Uh, Do you feel like we're any closer to getting a non-baseball chief executive uh, of baseball operations in the future?
1: Well, if it ever happens, then by definition, we are closer to it now than we were last time we talked about it. Good point. (laughs) I don't think we're very close. I don't, yeah, I don't think it's I, imminent. I don't either. I think that, I probably
0: think that for baseball operations job, you would want, I think you still would want the baseball person. I think mainly that, I think that what I mostly think is that some of these issues uh, that teams are dealing with now, like for instance, chemistry, it has never made sense to me to try to tackle chemistry uh, from a uh, baseball perspective I would want to tackle chemistry From an academic workplace Management perspective And so Like I think that there are positions Where Non-baseball people Who like Have essentially no Baseball expertise Could still be better Than the people Who are currently trying to Work on those issues In baseball But probably not GM I would say almost certainly not GM. In fact, I will say certainly not GM.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of sport specific expertise that comes in handy there. And maybe De Podesta felt that he wasn't going to get another shot to be a GM or he had already been one. So he'd reached the pinnacle of the baseball executive world. Unless you want to say that president is that. And that was a while ago and he hasn't gotten another shot. We don't, I don't, think he's been reported to have interviewed for a job recently so maybe he felt like for whatever reason that opportunity was behind him and he wanted to go somewhere else with more upward mobility he
0: was kind of seen i think as being the heir to sandy alderson in new york and sandy alderson is one of the older gms but maybe he maybe he was seen maybe he was wrongly seen as the heir there and maybe sandy alderson is not that old yeah well he would have a better sense of that than we would he would. I wonder how much, I wonder what he does now to prepare. Like, I wonder if he's been, I wonder what you do to get ready to be essentially to run a football team if you've <laughs> not been immersed in it before. Like, I can't imagine doing it in baseball.
1: I can't even imagine following a sport. I, I've wanted to become a hockey fan again for years, but it's so yeah. daunting to have, because I haven't watched it since I was a kid. And, I love watching the highlights are a really big game, but the idea of learning a league and getting to know it the way I know baseball is just so intimidating that I'll probably never do it. So yeah, actually working and having a position of responsibility in another sport. I mean, I'm sure he has been very plugged into football, but not to the extent that you are if you work in it. Mm -hmm.
0: All right. So that's most of an episode, but the topic now, (laughs) I I wanted to talk about Dan Heron's tweets. Okay. And first, I'm going to go really grumpy for a second. And mostly, I want to go grumpy in order to praise Andy McCullough. Uh, There is a a misconception out there that baseball players are funny. Uh, They're not. They're the least funny people in the world. Uh, Everything they try to do that is funny is not funny. Uh, And I think that one of the things that really sets Andy McCullough apart as a beat writer, more than any other writer out there, Is that most beat writers, I believe, uh, they dutifully report baseball players' attempts to be funny. Uh uh, And they think that that is the funny thing. That's the funny stuff. So it's like, oh, you know, guy came into the clubhouse wearing a banana hat. And that's not funny. That's, That's a guy trying to be cute. Not funny, though. Like, there's nobody ever heard that and went, ha ha. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like it's not except another
1: baseball player, maybe.
0: (laughs) And so so Dan Heron, whereas Andy, what Andy does though, is he finds the ways that they are actually funny. And to when Andy covers a team, they are a funny team. They are constantly saying and doing funny things. And they don't realize it. They are funny in the way that humans are funny. The way that God looks down at us and, and laughs at the weird, funny shapes that he has created us in and the things that we do. And he, Andy recognizes that baseball players are shaped funnily and that they do things, uh, in essence, the same way that toddlers do, which is to say, unintentionally cute and charming and funny all at the same time. Uh, I believe that Andy would never be suckered in by a bad baseball meme. Uh, and that's why I appreciate him. So Dan Heron tweeted yesterday a bunch of things. And I, uh, I don't think Dan Aaron was attempting to be funny. I think Dan Heron was, is, a, is an interesting and smart person. And he was trying to be, uh, he was sort of giving you uh, insight. I don't think that he would think that he was like killing uh, like a comedian would. And yet I'm looking here at the, uh, at the descriptions, at the headlines of, of various aggregators who uh, pulled Dan Heron's tweets together. All right. Former Cubs pitcher Dan Heron tweets hilarious stories about career. Dan Heron reflects on his career during hilarious Twitter rant. I did not search hilarious, by the way. I searched Dan Heron. All right. <laughs> Dan Heron, uh, let's see. Huh? Former Cubs pitcher tweets hilarious. Retired pitcher goes on funny Twitter tell-all. Dan Heron gets hilariously retrospective. These are... T- Ten results. Five of them either say hilarious or funny. Four say hilarious. Not hilarious, okay? It's not hilarious. (laughs) Interesting stuff. You guys will hear these and you'll go, oh, interesting.
1: So the topic is Dan Heron, overrated on Twitter.
0: No, these are great tweets. These are A plus tweets. (laughs) Okay. They're good tweets. They're not hilarious tweets. All right. I want to talk about these tweets though, each of them.
1: Okay. All
0: right. We're just going to, because they are an interesting, uh, they are an interesting, uh, Insight into the game, playing the game, career in the game, etc. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. By the way, I think Dan Heron is somewhat funny.
0: Oh, Dan Heron is funny. Yeah. Dan
1: Heron is a very funny person. <laughs> He's one of the funnier baseball people. Okay. So these tweets it's, specifically are not funny is what you're saying? But he has had I, funny tweets?
0: The, it's not that they're, I don't know. I don't know quite how to put it. They're not comedy. They're not, I don't feel like they're. They're honesty. Yeah, they're not, asp- they're, they're, the, the aspiration is not hilarity.
1: Yes, that's true. But he That's what does aspire say. to be funny with some tweets, and sometimes oh, they yeah, are. Oh, yeah, he does. Even his, oh, his yeah. handle is funny.
0: I throw 88, yes. Yeah. He, he is funny. Yeah. He is one of the funnier baseball okay. uh, tweeters. And these tweets are A+, plus, mm-hmm. and uh, and it is not his fault that they have been mischaracterized,
1: <laughs> Okay,
0: in my opinion. All right, so uh, his first tweet, I'm on an exercise bike board, so here are some things about my baseball career that come to mind. All right. I went into almost every start the last few years thinking, how the hell am I going to get these guys out? It is interesting because you. uh, I think that there are two kinds of veterans uh, out there. One kind refuses to acknowledge their decline. And I think that that is a very noble position to have. I've written about this with uh, Albert Pools and Brandon Phillips and probably others. There is no prize for being the first person to acknowledge your limitations. And if you do then they will just kick you out of the sport and then you never get a chance to be back in the sport. And so if you have to delude yourself into thinking you're very good, even when you're not, I think that's fine. Sometimes when veteran players will seem to be, uh, seem in their quotes to be uh, oblivious to the fact that they have declined, they are no longer the superstars that they once were, uh, we tend to mock them. And, uh, and I think that's uh, inappropriate. I think uh, they're doing what they need to do keep going. And then you have the Dan Heron ones who are very, very aware of their decline and they just keep going out there. And uh, it's interesting that these two types of personalities can both uh, coexist in the same world and thrive. And I wonder if anybody on Dan Heron's team knew that he felt that way. And if he had tweeted this three years ago instead of now, I wonder what the reaction would have been.
1: Yeah. If he had tweeted this instead of now, he I I would guess he would not have Pitched as long as I mean if he were public about This attitude I would guess that even that might be enough For some team not to sign Him in that last year when he was Talking about retiring anyway because you don't You know like I like him more Because he says this (laughs) And I like self-deprecating People and So it makes me uh, Identify with him more It makes me sympathize with him but i don't know if it would make me want to hire him um i mean probably he is exactly as effective as he would have been if he were one of these guys who convinced himself that he was still an ace and he hadn't lost anything because he would have lost something and maybe this is the way he copes with it and and it works for him so it probably doesn't matter but still you don't really you don't really want to be thinking that your th- that your pitcher is thinking that when he's on the mound when you're watching him when you're pulling for him you don't want to be thinking that he has a sort of defeatist attitude maybe it's not a defeatist attitude but you don't want to think that he is intimidated by his opponent so when we talk to you know we talked to the stompers I talked to you and I both talked to
0: stompers about the idea of surveying them uh, to have an idea to get to sort of uh, I mean teams are trying to collect Data on their players all the time Russell Carlton has written about how You could measure chemistry Theoretically if you wanted but you'd have The whole uh, you know Tapping on the glass problem uh, And when we've asked uh, When I asked players You know about whether You know it would be reasonable To survey their happiness there was A feeling among some not all but Some that there's no point in acknowledging the days that you aren't A+. plus. There, There's no point in acknowledging that you have ups and downs, that they need to continue to tell themselves every day that this is their best day, even if they feel that it's not. And, uh, you know, deep in their heart, they can't admit it. They can't acknowledge it. And I wonder if there's any benefit to that or if it's the Dan Heron model is actually kind of better that being realistic about, what you're feeling and about what your limitations are is the only way that you can really adjust to them. And, you know, to some degree, Dan Heron in his final three years is a huge success, right? Yeah. I mean, he was not very like, like he says, his physical decline was obvious uh, in terms of Ross, raw, raw ability, raw stuff, raw strength. And he managed to put together three years where he qualified for the RA title uh, all three years. He basically didn't miss any starts. He was a roughly league average pitcher overall through those three years. And I don't know. We don't know what the alternative is. We don't know how sad Dan Heron would have done, or I guess uh, not sad Dan Heron, the opposite, Uh, delusionally bullish. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. We don't know how that guy would have done. Uh, But there is probably, uh, you know, something to his ability to adjust to his uh, weaknesses that uh, I don't know that I would speculate the honesty helped
1: Yeah well you wouldn't want him Challenging guys with his 88 mile per hour fastball because Except <laughs> I'm well, going to skip yes, up ahead Alright <laughs> right, I'm going to skip
0: to another one I gave up so many homers because I didn't want to walk people That and because I threw 85 mile per hour Meatballs sometimes uh, Sometimes there's another one Sometimes when the count was 3-1 I would just throw it down the middle And hope for the best People pop up in batting practice right <laughs> And uh, you laughed yeah,
1: It's a Funny tweet Oh, dang Sorry. It. It's not hilarious.
0: All right. So, uh, do you think that, uh, Dan Heron's strategy, could he have tweeted that? Let me ask you that. Uh, I guess maybe that's the question is how many of these tweets could he have tweeted three years ago and everything would have been fine as opposed to it would have either hurt his earning potential or people would have criticized him when things went wrong or people would have called him, you know, soft or stupid or something else. Uh, Are those positions that he has that I throw 85-mile-per-hour meatballs and when it's 3-1, I throw it down the middle and hope for the best, would those have survived if he tweeted them in the middle of his career?
1: Well, the 85-mile-per-hour meatballs doesn't say he intends to do that. He just does that sometimes where the other one has intention to it. He's intentionally basically throwing meatballs when the count is 3-1. So I don't know whether acknowledging that he – makes bad pitches would have hurt him really because every pitcher makes bad pitches and everyone knew how hard he threw. So I don't think that would have killed him. And the other thing I think, I don't know, maybe someone would have talked to him. Maybe his catcher would have talked to him about not doing that. I don't think either one would have been a a career killer. But I like that he acknowledged that because sometimes pitchers throw weird things and you wonder why would he have thrown that pitch there Why would he have missed by that much? Why would he have not thrown his best pitch in that situation? And we assume that they're always throwing the optimal pitch and that they might just make a mistake sometimes, but they had the right idea, whereas uh, probably a lot of times they didn't. and They were probably just making a bad decision as well as making a bad pitch. So I don't know, maybe... Maybe the hitter is so not expecting Dan Heron to throw one down the middle on 3-1 that it actually works more often than you would think. But probably not a great idea.
0: Yeah. It'd be interesting to play it out and see how much you can pitch it right down the middle on 3-1. Like, can you do it to, like, the bottom 60% of hitters? Can you do it to, you know, as long as there's nobody on base? I mean, uh, it does seem like um i mean yes guys do pop up in batting practice guys foul it off in batting practice guys aren't that good at hitting home runs even when it's right down the middle sometimes all right i gave up 11 runs in toronto and got the win one time
1: Uh uh-huh he did not (laughs) oh (laughs) yeah
0: he actually did not do that he gave up nine in toronto one time and he got the win uh what do you make of the fact that he got this wrong
1: yeah baseball players don't ever check their (laughs) check their facts like there are so many stories and often it's you know some like 80 year old player remembering a game that was 50 years ago and maybe he doesn't know how to find that game on baseball reference or something so that's understandable or maybe it was before those things were even you know like like glory of their times has lots of stories and people have done Tracers to see if they were accurate And sometimes they aren't And there was no way to look that stuff up at the time So fine But this is <laughs> this is a really easy one to check And Dan Hearn's already Doing internet things So he could have checked this one Probably could have just googled it in five seconds Even if he didn't want to go look up the box score So I don't know <laughs> I don't know why you would Not check that I would check that
0: Intentional or hyperbole? I mean, uh, unintentional or hyperbole. What was the actual outing? He gave up nine. How uh, long did he go? uh, He went five. Uh And uh, they won 12 to 10. So the the A's didn't even allow Uh 11. He did allow 11 hits. Uh He He went five and two thirds that game. And by the way, nobody since at least 1980, play index, nobody since at least 1980 has allowed 11 in a game and gotten a win. Russ Ortiz allowed 10 and got a win. That is the, the most
1: since 1980. Interesting. Well, yeah, maybe it, maybe it's a little bit of hyperbole. Having a, a double-digit run total makes it more shocking.
0: Uh-huh. All right. Let's see here. I only hit like five to seven people on purpose. Uh-huh. I would have probably actually thought fewer. I'm surprised that it's that many. If I had to guess, I would have guessed that Dan Heron hit one person in his career on purpose that the average major leaguer hit 2 and that you know you'd have to go like 3 standard deviations from the mean to get to like uh like uh, higher than say 7. And
1: uh so 5 to 7 seems high to you. Does that seem high or low to you? Uh it didn't seem that high to me when I saw it. So how many so how many
0: hitters has he hit ish?
1: overall? S- something like 60. He hit uh, 67. So mm-hmm. it's a very low percentage of the batters he hit, and he pitched for thirteen years. So he hit one intentionally every couple of years, basically. But it doesn't shock me, especially because Dan Haren's not going to hurt anyone <laughs> that badly when he hits them. He doesn't throw hard enough.
0: Uh huh. I wonder of the five to seven. I wonder how many were retaliatory and how many were uh, preemptive strikes.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe. I wonder. He'd tell if- you.
0: What, what do you think, what would be your guess of all the intentional hit batsmen in baseball? Not like I was trying to pitch him, I was trying to back him off the plate and it got away from me, but I was trying to hit the guy. How many do you think are retaliatory? And how many are, how, basically, how many are retaliations against accidents <laughs> <laughs> versus how many are actually the intent that retaliation then in everything yeah
1: I'd say 70% retaliation and of those half our accidents
0: Uh uh-huh 70 okay all right I would count out the days about a month in advance to see if I was going to pitch in Coors Field this I mean I think we all everybody knows Coors Field is a bad place to pitch and the pitchers probably don't like to pitch there that much but this sort of puts it into perspective how difficult it must be for the Rockies (laughs) to ever hope yeah to, to get a free agent pitcher. And so in the baseball annual this year, the essay is, you know, about how the Rockies are trying to get pitching by you know x new by whatever whatever the the way is that we've identified this year and i was actually thinking like we could probably have just filled out the entire essay by block quoting from the previous 19 years (laughs) essays of the rockies are trying to find pitching by doing this and then the next year it's by doing this and then the next year it's by doing this and it's been 20 years is it just gonna be impossible like when dan Heron puts it like this it are they at such a disadvantage forgetting getting pitchers, that they will just simply never, ever be a franchise that can compete? Is this a bigger disadvantage, for instance, than being the Rays and having
1: no payroll? Well, it, uh, it definitely makes you think that they can't compete by signing free agent pitchers. And so I guess they've tried to compensate for that by developing their own. And then that hasn't worked very well either and you don't know whether that's their player development process that doesn't work well or whether it's just Colorado that doesn't work well if I were the Rockies right now I would probably just try to build the Blake Street Bombers again and just just outscore everyone on the road as well except that they have the the on the road hangover effect also so that is counting against them too so I mean they definitely have the biggest institutional disadvantage of any team in baseball i think at least as far as geographical location comes in so i mean it makes you you have to have someone pitch so it it does make you think that they should develop their own pitching and keep trying to figure out what works in coors field better than other stuff works even if none of it works that well the problem is that developing pitching doesn't work it's not a great way to to build a team no yeah. So, yeah, I would I mean, I probably works, just do it, the Cubs thing and and build a great position player prospect group, except that the Cubs have then been able to supplement sign with John like Leicester. Leicester, yeah, people like that. So yeah. you have to get a lot of good position player prospects and then do the Jake Arrieta trade five times. Then you'll be fine. Next year's essay. <laughs> Uh, All right,
0: and uh, let's see. I think this is the last one. There was at least three to four times I thought the team plane was going to crash. Now, we have a guy who emails us every few months (laughs) asking us to please answer his question, uh, which is all about what would happen, all the sort of scheduling things that would have to happen if a team plane actually crashed. And so Dan Heron tweeting it, Uh, brought it up again this guy emailed Dan Heron's tweet and the question we always have is can we actually talk about that would we actually talk about that we
1: can't right (laughs) well it it hasn't been talked about it was on Seinfeld as he pointed out I don't really want to talk about it okay all right so Dan Heron has not given us permission (laughs) to do the team plane crash (laughs) well I've probably been on three to four planes i on some level, thought we're gonna crash.
0: I the last one I was on, I was convinced. I think I've been on two that I thought was, but the last one, I was one hundred percent sure. <laughs> like I, I was, I was definitely like I was calm, and I was getting in my space uh-huh. uh, to die. Yeah, <laughs> it was very, and then it just, and then it doesn't. No, and then it's it's a weird thing. You just, oh, it just, it just doesn't, and then you go about your life and you forget that you ever felt those feelings
1: yeah and then you get on another plane (laughs) probably pretty soon well i
0: mean of course you get off you have to get on another plane
1: yeah yeah i mean Uh, i take a lot of flights i've never not taken a flight because i was worried about the flying but flying is probably the uh probably the only time in my life when i routinely think i'm about to die
0: i just don't you know the thing is that the i'm fine talking about I think I'm fine talking about dark things.
1: I think you. I don't. I think listeners would agree.
0: I don't think though. I think that what makes me uncomfortable about this and why it, there's no point to it is that it's essentially asking us to talk about a dark thing through the frivolous lens of scheduling. Yeah. And I just don't feel like there's any real need to do that. Like even if it ever happens, my first question is not going to be well what are they going to do about the schedule uh-huh. it's not going to be any of those sort of details of well how do they what happens to the league now it'll be awful and horrifying and uh so i kind of don't want to have on record me talking about that stuff in case it does happen yeah and then all of a sudden <laughs> like
1: mlb trade rumors sites sam miller's <laughs> take on what what happens next
0: yeah so i um I'm going to say no to that. (laughs) Um, But I do, I I always feel, you know, Ben, I always have a feeling when I leave, anytime I leave for a a work trip or anything like that, I always do feel a sort of nervousness, a, a, a scaredness, because I don't know why, but it sort of feels like if an accident is going to happen, it's going to happen while you're on, I don't know why, but while you're outside of your comfort zone, even though most accidents happen at home and you know close to home it feels much more likely that like if i'm going to um you know die in a car crash it feels more likely that it's going to happen when i'm driving 450 miles away from my family than when i'm driving two miles from my family Mm -hmm. and so i imagine that for a baseball player there is a certain amount of constant existential dread because you are just constantly leaving your home You're constantly leaving your family. You're constantly flying, getting on that big tin box that goes up in the air. And uh, there's probably something that is a relief the last day that you, you know, the day that you actually retire and you realize that you can go home and you don't have to feel that anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I feel the same way about going places just because I work from home and often don't stray far from my home. I'm just sitting around in my pajama jeans, writing or something, which is not a high-risk activity. So if I'm getting in a car, I'm probably uh, I'm probably exponentially raising my death risk, even if it's still tiny. It's another reason to dread going to Coors Field too, because those flights into Denver always very bumpy.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's why he was uh, counting the days. Maybe maybe uh, Chicago was where I was flying into the last time where I was convinced. And I, I've never flown in Chicago, but it was, you know, it's all windy and all that. Yeah. So is it always like that
1: in Chicago? Uh, that's like in where Chicago? you get stranded a lot of times. And huh. so, yeah, the weather is bad often.
0: So anyway, the reason I like these tweets as a whole We didn't is talk that about it, his
1: emodium tweets.
0: No, he also takes Imodium to uh, settle his stomach, I guess. On the days that say. he
1: pitches, yeah.
0: On the days that he pitches and he has uh, two glasses of wine the night before he pitches. Just another and
1: admission of fear, I guess.
0: He was, uh, BJ Upton hit really well against him, and he's not sure why. Uh, My threat to retire didn't quite work last offseason, which is a very interesting tweet and could have been on its own. Uh, And I think that's all. You know, this is a good, I think there's a good string of tweets because uh, it's important, I think, to remember, to keep in mind that baseball players uh, have stressful jobs, but they're different stresses than we have. Uh, in some ways, they're very similar to the stresses we have. In some ways, they're very different. And there are coping mechanisms for all of these things. Uh, and it's probably important to kind of view a lot of what we watch through the lens of uh, omnipresent stress and omnipresent coping mechanisms. There's, of course, the game is you know home runs and line drives and good plays and everything like that. But the subtext to it, the undercurrent of it all, is that these are uh, human beings dealing with stress and coping with that stress in ways that get them through 18-year careers. So it was really interesting to see these little details that I think you can pull the the strings on and see a lot deeper into um, both Dan Heron's psyche and the baseball player's psyche. And I appreciated them a great deal.
1: Yeah, not hilarious, but still worthwhile. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we'll do an email show tomorrow, we think. So send us some emails not about team planes crashing at podcast at baseballperspectives.com You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Support the Play Index. As we mentioned at the top of the show, the most useful baseball analysis tool that the public can use. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back soon. I know- Honey, honey, my skies are not so sunny, why don't you